Hello and welcome to So You Think You Can Rule Persia, the podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia from Diokis to Yazdegerd III. I'm Serial and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm Umberto, my pronouns are he, him. So hello everyone and welcome to episode 21, which Serial, last time you thought it was going to be Cassander. I, yes. Based on the poll we put on Twitter, everybody is saying Seleucus and very few people saw... are saying Antigonus. Unbelievable. I feel betrayed. I expected more people to be for Antigonus. A lot of people for Ptolemy, which is surprising, but you go, Ptolemy stands. You go. Well, we know about Ptolemy. Like, it's the Ptolemy. Yes, So, Ptolemy, so I guess Ptolemy. people were like, ah, yes, you know, this person's important. <laughs> Fair. So. And, well, it looks like either the majority was right in their instincts or they cheated by knowing things. Ooh. Because today's episode is about Seleucus I Nicator. Or Nicator, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Oh, okay. So can you give me a bit of a recap on who Seleucus is? Well, not for me, but for, you know, our audience who might have not listened to the podcast course, for like a week or even more. So um, who is this man? We'll go through it in detail, but to give you just a, an inkling of who Seleucus is. What did we know already? What did we know already is he's shown up a little bit before because he was captain of the cavalry at one point he became the satrap of babylon then lost to babylon then sort of got it back and then i stopped talking about him because we had to look at baby alexander have a horrible end yes which was the most important bit yes. in that episode obviously so yes now we have seleucus nicator serial can you extrapolate anything from his nickname can you write it down <laughs> so you can see how it's written yes oh uh is this a Greek nickname? or is It is this... a Greek one, uh, yes. Okay, so does it come from Nike, aka Victory? Yes. So it's Seleucus Victorious? Yeah, pretty much. It's Seleucus right. the Victorious, so... Hell yeah, I know my Greek. <laughs> is it going to be an ironic nickname? Is it actually going to work out? Okay. We'll see. <laughs> that would actually be very funny. Seleucus, yeah, like, the he winner. goes. <laughs> if he goes down in history with an ironic nickname. Yeah. We should do that more. <laughs> it would be very confusing, but, you know, much more amusing as well. Somebody, the great, in quotes. You know, that yeah, sort of thing. You know, the great. <laughs> the wow, really good. <laughs> okay, but let's get started with who is Seleucus? Let's go through the life of this boy. Who is the right. golden boy that I've been speaking of for so long. I love him. Oh, Okay, well, I'm, I am intrigued. Please. Well, let's start with when he was born, because Seleucus <laughs> is of the same generation as Alexander the Great was. So they oh, are okay. roughly in the same period overall. So Seleucus was born in 358 BC, so one year younger than Alexander, from a family of the lesser Macedonian nobility. So he's not really related to royalty very closely. He's just part of the, some of the many nobles that exist in Macedon. Okay. Yes, yes. But as we established, when you are in the nobility or royalty, you tend to study together. So you get to know each other and you get yes, to know the people around good. you, right? Yes, because we don't really know much about his youth, but we can presume that he was raised with Alexander and all the other characters we've heard about, you know, Cassander, Ptolemy, Perdiccas, Demetrius, all the people that we've listened so far to. The whole team. Yes. But something that will give you a hint as to... Seleucus's future is a birth myth. 
Because Justin, okay. the Roman historian, tells us that Seleucus's mother had a dream at one point where Apollo was the one who fathered her unborn child and gave her a ring engraved with an anchor on the stone of the ring. And the next morning, when the mother awoke, she found this magical ring had appeared on her bedside. And nine months later, okay. baby Seleucus was born with a birthmark on his thigh in the shape of an anchor, like on the stove. <gasps> That's not... That cannot <laughs> be. Come on. It could be. Can you prove that it isn't? I think not. I, well, it... it <laughs> an anchor? <laughs> yeah, it's an anchor. It's, you know, it can, it's like a weird T-shape. I can believe somebody had an anchor-ish birthmark. Yeah, yeah, I'm not doubting it. It's just a you know, big coincidence, the two things yeah. at once. Could be, or it's a really good prank by someone, whichever. Indeed, yes. Okay, so... We have a birth from prophecy, and he is apparently the son of Apollo. Nice, good start. I mentioned that we didn't really know too much about his youth, because he's probably raised with the other nobles, but... He's not specifically mentioned anywhere. Mm -hmm. And later on, when Alexander becomes king, Seleucus accompanied him into the Asian expedition and rose through the ranks mm -hmm. progressively as time passed. And particularly after Parmenion's faction was eliminated, there was a whole conspiracy with Alexander who eliminated some of Philip's old generals, a family that had helped him out. Yes, yes. And so Alexander needed new people to help him, and, well, Seleucus rose through the ranks there. And the first historical information we have about him is in India in 326, where he was then mm -hmm. appointed as captain of the elite phalanx called the Silver Shields. Ooh, okay. Fancy name. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. And we also get more omens about the expedition. Hooray. Oh, okay. Please tell me. Because we're Love told that omen. before leaving, Seleucus visited an oracle to ask about his return to Macedonia and say, okay... When am I going to get back? Is it going to be okay? What's going to happen? Mm -hmm. The usual. And the oracle told him, do not hurry back to Europe. Asia will be much better for you. What? So we'll see if that was true. Okay. Interesting. Did he have a family to go back to? His parents were there. Mostly oh, his parents. Okay. I don't know if, if his brother came along with Alexander, but he has a brother. Okay. So hmm. yeah, possibly. Well, then maybe, I mean, still, you know. I'm sure he missed them, but it's not like other soldiers who had their wives and children oh, yeah, no, uh, waiting for them. So I, I could see how he would be like, eh, maybe I'll stay in Asia for yeah, a while. It could be. Also, we're told that his mother, again, had a dream because she's apparently uh, gifted with prophecy. Yeah. She had a dream that whatever ring she found, she should give to Seleucus and he would become king of the land where he lost it. So in uh, this version of the myth... The mother found an iron ring with an engraved anchor matching the birthmark, and Seleucus lost it in the Euphrates River nearby Babylon. I see. So that's pretty mm. cool. Then we have another anchor myth. Oh, what is it with Seleucus and anchors? Most coins that fisherman? Seleucus has will have anchors on them. It's, it's a thing. That's eh. weird. Yeah, so this other omen is that when Seleucus was returning to Babylon one time with Alexander, he stumbled against a stone... And digging it up to find out what the deal was, he found out mm -hmm. that, well, it was an ancient anchor. Mm -hmm. So some of the soothsayers thought, oh, this is a bad omen. You're going to be stuck in one place. You're not going to be able to move. That's a, it's bad. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. Anchored to the ground. Yeah. But Ptolemy, yes, that Ptolemy <laughs> said, no, 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 it's not a sign of delay. It's a sign of safety because ships are only anchored in port when they're all safe and uh, secure. So good reason. Awesome. Good way of interpreting it. Thank you, Ptolemy. Yeah. Also, during Alexander's expedition, we're given a sign of Seleucus's physical strength because we're told that he was large mm. and powerful and well-built. Because mm -hmm. one day when Alexander was going to sacrifice a wild bull to the gods, the bull got away and broke free. And Seleucus just went to this bull and barehanded, basically wrestled it back towards Alexander I, on his own. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> so he is a buff man. <laughs> so there we go. Was he very tall as well? We're not told just... about his height, but... Presumably, he was more on the shorter side, like most Macedonians. Okay. Like, I guess Alexander yeah, just, was especially just because short. I know Alex, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. I wanted the comparison. I'm just being mean. It's fine. He's probably slightly taller because Hephaestion was average height and was taller than Alexander. So there we go. Makes sense. But yeah, so Alexander, as we know, his expedition is forced to turn back from India. And he returns to Babylon. And there in Babylon, he makes all of his generals, all of his important lieutenants, marry Iranian princesses. Oh, yeah, I remember about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Seleucus is one of these. Because Seleucus is given in marriage a woman named Apama, who was the daughter of Alexander's main rival in Bactria. Ooh. And it's interesting to note that even though, as I mentioned, all other Macedonian generals divorced their Iranian wives after Alexander died, Seleucus didn't. Mm -hmm. Seleucus stayed happily married oh. with Apama. That's honestly very nice. Surprisingly refreshing for history. Yeah. So we can assume that they probably actually liked each other, which is a nice change from all the death and destruction we've been yeah. having so far. So oh, there we go. Yeah, please. <laughs> yes, we need to still finish the funeral so game. So much death. There we go. Yeah, so the two managed to remain married, and that was a nice thing. And they had several children. One child named Antiochus, their eldest boy, uh -huh. and then two daughters and possibly another son. It's unclear. There's a son called Achaeus who might just be a cousin. It's unclear in the sources, so we don't know mm. if he was actually their son. But eh. Maybe. The important one to remember is Antiochus. I was just thinking about how, now that you were mentioning mm -hmm. how we're not quite sure... And how often we are either not sure of the names, not sure of the relationships, just like how interesting it is that all these people were, regardless of how the relationship worked and what their actual names were, they were real people. Like, as mistaken as the sources might be, like yeah. we're talking about someone who like lived and breathed on this planet at some point, which is... When you actually think about it, a strange thought. I mean, it is pretty freaky that every week we go through the life of, like, a full human person and we just describe all yeah. of it and there we go. Who had their hopes and dreams and personality yeah. and friends and moments alone that only they will remember because nobody else was there to witness. And I don't... Humanity is just... Ah, yeah, it's... Man. A lot. <laughs> okay, sorry. Just, uh, sometimes... But yeah, but while Seleucus and Apama were enjoying their early marriage and cradling their new baby, who was mm -hmm. soon, of course, to join Alexander's own half-Iranian, half-Macedonian child, 
Uh, yes, of, of, of course. We, we need an heir. Yeah, right? definitely. Alexander dies. Uh, uh, but at this point, Alexander is dead, so we need to decide who's the heir. So in this specific case, Seleucus was physically in Babylon, and he sided with Perdiccas. So he was on the side of baby Alexander, should be the king, as opposed to Aridaeus. Mm-hmm. And in the end, you know, as we saw, Perdiccas ended up becoming regent and appointed Seleucus as commander of the cavalry, which was a pretty prestigious position because it was originally held by Hephaestion and it was essentially the leader of the royal guard. So it's a good position. I can see. So he doesn't get any satrapies, but still, it's an important place to be. And then after this period, we lose track of him for a few years until the first war of the Diadochi, where he follows Perdiccas all the way to Egypt. And he is one of the three people who end up murdering Perdiccas and basically handing over the reins of power to Ptolemy. Hmm. And this is the beginning of a long relationship between Seleucus and Ptolemy. But then we move on to the Treaty of True Paradisus, where there's a new redistribution of power and Seleucus in exchange for having killed Perdiccas, manages to obtain the satrapy of Babylon, which was second in prosperity only to Egypt, so this is a really good deal for him. He managed to really climb his way up. Mm. And we're told that in the next years he administered Babylon well enough with respect for local traditions, and the people seemed to like him, and he was a good governor overall. Mm Mm-hmm. We then hear from him again during the Second War of the Diadochi, when Eumenes was passing through. Right. But Seleucus refused entry to the city of Babylon for Eumenes because, well, he just received news that Philip Aridaeus had been murdered by the side of Eumenes, and so was getting mixed signals, and he decided to leave it. Hmm. So off Eumenes goes to his death. Bye-bye. Sorry, you were cool. But then we have, in 315, something that we touched upon briefly last time, is that Antigonus, who was essentially now the lord of most of the Asian part of the empire, who was starting to behave more and more like a king, as opposed to just a satrap among many. And we know that that is dangerous. Yes, very much. Every time. And so he passed through Babylon and was hosted by Seleucus, of course. You know, they're colleagues, they're working together. Yeah, yeah. But a conflict broke out soon. Because Seleucus had punished one of his sub-governors for some minor crime while mm-hmm. Antigonus was around. But Antigonus was then very angry at Seleucus because he said that, well, since I've been appointed as general over Asia, I should have been consulted in this matter because, well, Babylon's in Asia. You are my subordinate. Mm-hmm. Surprise. So, you know, he's sort of showing his hand that, yeah, Seleucus isn't just a colleague. He is... Technically a subordinate. But all with a smile, you know. Yeah, it's it's fine. We're all friends here. Yeah, so Seleucus now, having heard news that some other satraps that disagreed with Antigonus ended up murdered, or at the very best deposed and exiled, Uh Seleucus decides that maybe we should get out of the way (laughs) before things get dirty. Slightly. Yeah. Be smart. So Seleucus took his family and escaped Babylon before he met with an quote-unquote accident. Right, right. Just, you know, tumbled down the stairs or something. Yeah, it happens. And so he ran off to his old friend Ptolemy. Because, you know, they've known each other since childhood and he was nice to him in mm-hmm. Egypt. So, great. And Seleucus brings Ptolemy the news of Antigonus overreaching his power, or Antigonus wanting to become king. 
So this is what eventually starts the Third War of the Diadochi. So the Third Civil War. Oh, uh, here we go. About a decade. Because we needed another one. Of course. So there we are. At the beginning of the war, Seleucus is given command of Ptolemy's fleet. He has given 100 ships with which he resupplied the besieged city of Tyre that was holding on for Ptolemy that we mentioned last time. And he also patrolled the Aegean Sea to stop Antigonus's forces from crossing into Europe, making sure that that part of the alliance was sort of safe. Mm-hmm. And then Seleucus also helped Ptolemy's brother in taking back Cyprus from the Antigonid forces, which was quite an advantage in controlling the sea in that whole area. So, great, good news. But? We then next hear of Seleucus on land when he is inside Ptolemy's army in the closing years of the war. Because if you remember, Ptolemy defeated Demetrius, the son of Antigonus, and moved up north into Syria. Mm -hmm. And it might have actually been Seleucus that recommended that Ptolemy, who was usually more cautious, actually attack Demetrius rather than Uh. waiting to see how things go. So he was helping out in the command there. However, we saw that Antigonus then returned to the area and Ptolemy started retreating back to Egypt. Hmm. But Seleucus didn't follow him here. Seleucus decided to take a few thousand men under his command and march all the way back to Babylon to retake it on his own. Right, uh, why? Because it was his old satrapy and he thought, I've got to get no, what, was, what is mine. He was, I see, he was sentimental about it. Yeah, and the people liked him there, so why not? Mm. And yeah, also the sources sort of make it sound like a spontaneous decision by Seleucus, that he just decided to take the soldiers yeah. he had and run off. <laughs> he was just like, hey guys, what, just just give me a minute. I'll be right there. <laughs> just quick side trip. Uh, I'll be back in uh, five minutes. But it's probably just that he and Ptolemy planned it together. Because this way, Antigonus has two things to focus on. Not just Ptolemy, but Ptolemy in Egypt and Seleucus in Babylon. So mm-hmm. it's a bit of a... It's a clever move by them, at least. So off we head to Babylon. Hooray! Hey! We're off to retake Babylon. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> so yeah, so he heads off with a few thousand men, about a thousand men, all the way to Babylon. And he didn't really encounter much resistance, fortunately. He only had one important case at Karai, which mm-hmm. is, for those who know, yes, it's that Karai, it's the same, I, I checked. Oh. Huh? It'll be, it'll be relevant what? in, the, like, 20 episodes. Me. Spoilers? <laughs> but yeah, there. Anyway, at Karai, he managed to subdue the garrison and recruit anybody else who would join and just imprison everybody who wouldn't so that they mm-hmm. could talk. And then later on, as he heads towards Babylon, a lot of his old sub-commanders went back to join him to actually retake the city. Mm-hmm. So there we go. And in 311, finally, Seleucus arrives in the great city of Babylon, where he is welcomed with open arms by the citizens, who remembered his time as a satrap there and saw him as a fair and good ruler. As much as you can, you know, like a ruler when you're a subordinate. Yeah. But sure. Apparently he, you know, he cleaned up the plumbing, that sort of thing. He made sure everything yeah. worked. Good to know. And so he arrives in the city, and this 311 BC is when the Seleucid dating system begins it takes this as year one, oh. and it will be used for the next centuries. <gasps> Interesting. But unfortunately, Babylon isn't completely his, because the Antigonid forces 
had run away into the little citadel, the little fortified area of Babylon, and were holding up there and keeping that area and taking it in control. Mm-hmm. So Seleucus had to ensure that this place was taken so that if there was a siege, he didn't have to get attacked by the inside and the outside of the city, which yeah, that would, have would been be an bad. Issue. Just, you know, generally that's not advised. Yeah, pretty much. So he decides to lay siege to this little citadel. And unfortunately, the several months that it took to force it to surrender sort of deprived Seleucus of an element of surprise because, well... Because, mm, you know, I'm, it took now, some months. Yeah, Antigonus now knows that Seleucus has taken Babylon and he can also make sure he actually takes back the citadel. And actually, Seleucus receives news that an Antigonid army, about six times his own, is coming oh. from the eastern satrapies towards him. Uh-huh. Great, so that's not great. great. Good news. So to make sure that at least all of Babylon is his, he decides, okay, enough of this starving them out crap. Let's just storm the citadel. Sure, we'll lose more men, but we need to have everything in our control for this to work. Time is of the essence now. Yeah. So they storm the citadel and actually finally take control of all of Babylon. So great. But Seleucus, still the army six times his size coming towards him. Mm-hmm. So he needs to figure something out. So he took three and a half thousand of his men and crossed the Tigris River before the Eastern army arrived. So they didn't get to use the river to their advantage. Yeah. Also, he sent out a few spies into the Eastern camp to spread the rumor that actually Seleucus had run away and left Babylon and the road was wide open. Right. So the Antigonid commander started being a bit more lax, saying, oh, you know, well, if Seleucus ran away, what's going to happen? We're not going to get ambushed, are we? That would be ridiculous. <laughs> How could this be a trap? <laughs> they would never. Ah, when have the Greeks ever used tricks to defeat their enemies? Never. <laughs> That's not a thing. Yeah, they've never made horses to capture cities. That would be silly. Yeah. So Seleucus managed to take advantage of the situation and with a specifically chosen group of uh, soldiers, he launched a night attack on the Antigonid camp. Specifically targeting their leaders. A night attack? Yes. In the dark, so nobody could see. In the darkness of night. So, from the darkness, out come Seleucus and his men, who kill all the officers who had loyalty to Antigonus. And they leave all the soldiers, who don't really have any loyalty to anyone as long as they're paid, intact. So, the next morning, all the officers are dead, and Seleucus... Says to the army, hey, I have money. Do you want to join my side? Oh. And everybody joins. Uh, surprise. So Seleucus now has 20,000 soldiers at That his is command. hilarious. I love that his problem was, oh no, they have a way bigger army. And his solution was, yoink, my <laughs> army now. Mine. Yes, Uno reverse card. There you go. Yeah. My army. Hilarious. So now he actually has a significantly sized army that could actually reasonably face Antigonus and his satraps. So, Mm -hmm. awesome. So Seleucus now, at this point, quickly takes the southwest of Iran, including Persia, which is why he's our ruler of Persia for today, Mm -hmm. and then appointed his own satraps in the place of the ones that had been killed in the previous battle, the ones loyal to Antigonus. So, everything is looking very nice for him. Antigonus is preoccupied with war in the west. He has... Mm -hmm. beginning to take control in the east, and everything seems to be looking good. 
But now that Seleucus thought everything was going well for him, it stops. Because 311 is when the peace in the West is concluded. Because the big civil war ends and Ptolemy in Egypt, Lysimachus in Thrace, Cassander in Macedon make peace with Antigonus, who technically controls most of Asia, but is now in contrast with Seleucus. Right. The problem here is that now Antigonus has only Seleucus to focus on. So that's a problem. Mm. So Antigonus is, sends his forces to the east to try and take back Babylon. Fly, my pretties! <laughs> All the flying monkeys, there they go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know why we are... Th- this Very episode Wizard of is, Oz today. Yeah, Wizard of Oz themed. I don't know why. Eh. I'll ask my brain about it later. But as Antigonus sent his forces east, all the other, you know, the other important players, the other successors, let's call them Mm -hmm. that name, they hear news that Seleucus is doing really well and Antigonus is weak. So one year later, just after the peace, Ptolemy attacks Antigonus and starts the fourth war of the successors. Oh, yay! Hooray! I was wondering who would be the one. (laughs) Oh, we love it. I am. Will we live to see the peace? Maybe. Maybe not. I'm so done, but not like I'm so done. Obviously, like I, I don't have to live through it. So that's great. Imagine the people, Mm. at at this time, just just they have to be so done with this ridiculousness. Pretty sure, yeah. Pretty sure they'd all be very done with this. Uh, Yet another one. Okay, well. But in the meantime. Seleucus had never made peace, so he continued campaigning in media against Antigonus's man. But Antigonus's son, Demetrius, finally arrived in Babylon to besiege the city, much like mm-hmm. Seleucus before him. Right. However, as the Fourth Civil War started up again, Demetrius was called back towards the west to try and deal with that, because Seleucus was a minor player, wasn't going to hurt anybody yeah. compared to Ptolemy. And so when Demetrius goes away, Seleucus manages to sneak back towards Babylon and defeat <laughs> the less competent commander that was left in his place. So, Excellent. Awesome. Then The next years are a little bit hazy, but what we know is that baby Alex IV is killed, as before. Yes. And there's no real king. Everybody's sort of pretending that Alexander the Fourth is still alive and king, but yeah, because they cannot deal with the fact that like they're in trouble again. Yeah. So they're just like, you know what? We're just gonna <laughs> pretend. We're just, we're just gonna, you know, we just yeah, be fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about <laughs> it. So everybody sort of pretends that nothing's changed, but everybody is looking for an excuse to make themselves king because nobody has any legitimacy yes, anymore. Yes, you do. Let's just go for it. Yeah, it's your chance. Might as well make some lemonade from these lemons. So hoping to snatch an easy victory, Antigonus marches east personally to finally break Seleucus' forces and take him down, Uh take control of Iran and win. So we're told that the two sides fought an inconclusive battle and nobody won, nobody lost. It was half and half. But when night fell, the Antigonid army disarmed for rest know so they can go to sleep but what do we know about seleucus his one military strategy that has worked it is currently night attacks so when all of antigonus's forces are disarmed seleucus launches a night attack on them with his men who had been specifically prepared for this and forces the enemy to flee 
Unfortunately for Seleucus, Antigonus manages to get away alive. He doesn't manage to cut the head off the snake. Mm. He is still around and ready to cause danger. Oh no, be careful. They bite. Yep. And so it works. Basically, they come to a new deal where Antigonus is busy in the West and with Ptolemy. He doesn't want to have to deal with Seleucus, so he says, okay, you know what? Let's sign a deal. Seleucus, you're confirmed in the land you have, and I'm confirmed in the land I have. Mm -hmm. Let's forget about it. Great. So Seleucus begins governing his new satrapy to ensure that everything is in order and everything is well administered before he leaves. Mm -hmm. So he organizes Babylon and ensures that everything is stable for the war that is definitely coming again, because this isn't going to end until everyone is dead. So one of the first things he does is rebuild the Temple of Marduk, which had been destroyed by Xerxes I after the Rebellion of Babylon 150 oh, years earlier. Xerxes, how dare. You remember the one where he melted down the giant golden statue, that whole thing? Oh, yes, I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> that. So Lucas okay. is giving them money to rebuild. Okay, good. Because he wants the Babylonians to like him, and they seem yeah, to like him. That's how you do it, yeah. Yeah. Also... It's something that all the other successors are doing, so Seleucus decides to do uh, it as well. Copycat. He chose to found a new city on the Tigris River, 70 kilometers north of Babylon, to be his new headquarters. And he calls it Seleucia. As you do, but, you know, we have so many Alexandrias. But also, why put your headquarters in a new city like isn't that worse since it's i don't know new and not well established and you know well th there are many reasons to do this both here and for the other successors so the first one is that it's in a more defensible place because it's just uh, past okay. the tigris so, it's really, it's so there's really two just rivers. a big military base like that's at the moment yes it's still not anything yeah originally yes and also what it's useful for is that he can populate it with Macedonians so that even though he's far away, even if the Babylonians uh, choose to have a native uprising, then he can have his fallback. Interesting. So it has several roles that it's trying to fulfill, and this is mm. one of them. Apparently, the Babylonian astrologers were unhappy with this. The priesthood didn't want to lose their importance because I mentioned this in episode zero, but this is the first step of Babylon migrating slightly north as time mm -hmm. progresses. And apparently the Babylonian astrologers said that the foundation of the city would be lucky late in the afternoon. Mm. But actually, if you looked at the stars, the correct time would have been early in the morning. Oh, huh. So they wanted to get the omens to look bad to start with. So it's like, ah, oh, damn. Ah, uh, looks like we can't make your city, Seleucus. The omens are bad. Uh, right. Were the omens actually bad, or were they just... Eh, you know, it's probably just looking at the stars and saying, yeah, this is a thing. But, as a miracle would have it, Seleucus' oh. soldiers started working spontaneously at the correct time. Ah. <laughs> so the omen was fulfilled. That is so, that's when you do... Two wrongs make a right, for some <laughs> Pretty reason. Much. You know, like, you do everything wrong, but somehow it still works yeah. out. That's excellent. Probably Seleucus had just heard that the astrologers gave him the wrong time and just made this miracle happen so he wouldn't have to humiliate the astrologers, but he'd still get good omens. So, of course. Hooray. Yeah. Excellent. 
I, I can imagine the astrologers just trying for him to not make this city, right? For whatever <laughs> reason, probably political reasons, whatever. And they're like, okay, we're going to do this, going to misguide him purposefully so that we're going to say that it was a, a bad omen so that he would listen. And then their faces. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> when they start working anyway, and they're like, I, uh, okay, fine. You win this round, Salukas. <laughs> You know, clenched jaws, just like, oh, isn't that great? <laughs> Yay, like, wow, how so lucky. Like, yeah. Oh, how luck is on your side, truly. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So Seleucia is founded sort of as a twin to Babylon because it's made to have roughly the same size. It is quite large and it is very defensible because it has three branches of the Tigris along three of its sides. So only mm. one of the sides of the city is accessible and it's the side mm. that's further east. So it's harder to access for Antigonus. So everything is. That's excellent. You ordered. have like already three walls built. Yeah, by basically. So that's a good position. Mm hmm. But now Mesopotamia has been settled, and while Antigonus is in the west fighting other people, Seleucus decides that he is going to take control of the eastern satrapies, which were sort of a weird neutral area. Mm -hmm. And in two years, Seleucus manages to take all of Iran, he takes all of Bactria, both through a combination of military power and through diplomacy, because, well, his wife is Bactrian. Apama yeah, is from there, so... Yeah. so he has family connections, so great. Awesome. Hooray. But it seems that at this point in the East, the situation was pretty chaotic with everybody sort of breaking off semi-independently. It was a mess for everyone, really. But Seleucus manages to bring them back into his own growing empire. And then in 306, he arrives all the way to the Indus River, where he finds that things have changed because it's time to conquer all of India. It's time to conquer all of India. Most, Most of, of India. India. <laughs> because that guy, Chandragupta Maurya, has decided to create yes. the first Indian Empire. Uh, good timing. And has begun expanding to the west. And there he interacts with, well, the places that were nominally under the control of the Macedonian Empire. And were now right. technically under Seleucus' jurisdiction, although it's kind of unclear. But there, these two sides clash. And we don't really know if it was a significant war or if it was just like a minor skirmish and they decide to make a deal. But in the end, we know that after about a year of this minor conflict, the two rulers decide to reach an arrangement. Oh, okay. Because in this case, Seleucus is, is going to surrender all the lands south and east of the Hindu Kush, which is basically the center of Afghanistan, roughly, in mm -hmm. modern day, including the Indus Valley. Okay. And in return, Chandragupta is going to have a marriage alliance with Seleucus. Some say uh, marry his daughter. With Seleucus himself? Who knows? <laughs> Write your fan fiction. <laughs> oh, I would love fan fiction about this, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there is. I trust I, the internet. I Listen, there is a lot of very niche fan fiction, but I think you are reaching the limit of what niche, like, <laughs> where fan fiction can reach. Audience, you know what to do. <laughs> oh, please send it to me. If this ever exists, please tag me. Please definitely do if you write it. But in exchange for this alliance and this land, Chandragupta gives Seleucus a gift of 500 war elephants that he can use in the wars to come. Nice. Which is a pretty nice okay. deal. Yeah. 
So overall, yeah, this is a good deal for both of them because on the one side, they both get a nice, easily defensible border because they have this whole massive mountain range basically drawing from the Himalayas, which is significant. So it's hard to invade either way. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, for Seleucus to control the Indus River Valley, he would have had to constantly cross this Himalaya-sized yeah. mountain range. It was, it was just very not meant to, to be. Listen, sometimes just uh, give up a couple cities. Yeah, pretty it's much. Okay. And in exchange, Seleucus gets to have his army strengthened and his eastern flank is safe and secure. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, Chandragupta's western flank is secure and he can just move on to invade south. And everyone made Everybody new friends. Everybody wins. Yeah. Straight. Awesome. Hooray. Honestly, I'm, I'm very impressed by this. Like, I'm. <laughs> it's surprisingly agreeable and strategically sound, and I, I love it. I guess they yeah. got along. Pretty much. So it's all pretty cool. Now is when you break my heart by telling me that Chandragupta betrayed our boy and nah. stabbed him in the heart. Nah, actually, the Morias are pretty honorable dudes. Like, Chandragupta's grandson, Ashoka the Great, is going to just become a full-on pacifist and convert yeah. everyone to Buddhism. It's a cool story. This is very cool. When are we getting a podcast about this? I would well, love to know more. There are only three kings with good sources, but I'd be happy oh, to no. tell you more oh, about those was... three kings in a future specials. Who knows? Ooh. Mysteries. Okay, stay tuned. But now Seleucus has to bash some skulls in the West. <laughs> As you do. Because he hears that, well, Antigonus has been fighting, and surprise, surprise, Antigonus had decided to throw away the royal charade and had taken the title of king after ah. defeating Ptolemy in a naval battle. You know. And with this royal title, he was also technically claiming the whole empire because, well, there's only ah. ever been one king, so there is that messaging going on. Yeah, we don't do the sharing thing here. Yeah. But seeing this, all the other successors, Lysimachus and Thrace, Cassander and Macedon, and Ptolemy in Egypt, all declare themselves kings after whatever victory they could gain. <laughs> because that's what you do. You're king, no, I'm king. Not I'm king. Yeah, because, eh, you know, everybody's a king now. Let's just fight so to the death for is. it. So nobody is. Great. And coming back, also Seleucus thinks, okay, well, I don't want to be a satrap of one of these losers. I'm going to make myself mm. king. Yep. So it, king listen, it was just a logical. It was just a logical conclusion of it all. Yeah, you know, it was broken already. It was broken when Alexander breathed his last. Now we're just making it official. Yeah. And now, death match. Fight. Yes, and now the reckoning has come. Plutarch also tells us a little cute story about a, a feast held by Demetrius, the son of Antigonus and heir, where all the invited people toasted to kings Antigonus and Demetrius. Uh-huh. And instead, Admiral Ptolemy, the treasurer <gasps> Lysimachus, and oh! the commander of the elephants, Seleucus. <gasps> the audacity. Yes. <laughs> also, Cassander wasn't important enough to be mentioned in the toast. <gasps> Oh, yeah. unbelievable. Shots fired. Somebody's going to have to die for this. I'm fanning myself right now. Oh. <laughs> Pearl clutching all around. Yes. But apparently, Seleucus had a good laugh at receiving the news and just prepared his army 
to crush the enemy. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, very funny. Unsheathed sword. <laughs> Unsheathed 500 elephants he received. <laughs> That's true, I forgot. <laughs> so there we go. Unsheathed 500 elephants. <laughs> so Solucus heads west to try and join the other satraps. We've decided a final war. It's the other kings now, not satraps. So it's oh, Antigonus... Yes who is trying to take all the empire versus Seleucus, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander. Yeah. So Seleucus heads to the west. And by the way, just so Roberto from History of Georgia and Tsar Power is happy. <laughs> We're doing name drops now. I yes. see. On the way to the Caucasus, Seleucus crowned Parnavaz of Iberia as the first king of the kingdom of Iberia. So oh. there you go. Well, hey. Yeah. It's Iberia and the Caucasus, not Iberia and Spain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different yeah. Iberia. It's difficult. So there we go. Foundation of that place. But yeah, so now all the kings are ready to throw down. And it looks like one climactic battle is forming up. Because Ptolemy, as is his usual, is staying pretty reserved in Egypt, holding his position, using his navy to take coastal areas. Mm-hmm. Cassander is hiding off in Macedon and has sent some of his soldiers to Anatolia. Okay. And Lysimachus is there with Cassander's soldiers trying to face down Antigonus. Okay. The problem is that Antigonus's army is quickly closing in on <laughs> Lysimachus, and he has about 80,000 soldiers and 100 elephants. Ah, fun. Well, we have more elephants. Well, Lysimachus on his own has 40,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry. About half. Yeah. But, on the light of the third day, look to the east. And there comes Seleucus with his beautiful army. Seleucus has 20,000 infantry, 10,000 Iranian heavy cavalry, and 500 elephants. So now the sides are equal. (laughs) We have received some aid. Long last. The pride of the Rohirrim, but it's all elephants. It's wonderful. (laughs) Indeed. So with all the forces combined, the two sides are ready to face off at a place called Ipsus in 301, Hmm. 22 years after Alexander's death. The two sides meet, and there's a fierce battle, but Seleucus' heavy cavalry and elephants managed to overwhelm the Antigonid side cavalry controlled by Seleucus' young son Antiochus. Oh, him, yes. And the allies managed to win a great victory against Antigonus. But not only that, Antigonus himself, general of Philip II, who had been fighting for decades, is killed in battle. (gasps) And his kingdom is thrown to the winds. Without any more his control, his son Demetrius escapes with a few remaining men to take control of the fleet, but Antigonus's empire is destroyed and the wars of the world have somewhat ended. This is phase one of the funeral games over. Because nobody (laughs) is is powerful enough to take control anymore. I'm kind of afraid to ask, but how many phases are we going to deal with? Two or three, depending on who you ask. This is the new Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) Yes, who's the next big bad now that Antigonus is dead? 
Also, he so you said general to Philip. He was II. a general to Philip the Second. He was one of the older members of all. This Alex's group. dad. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Oh, He'd damn. been around for a while. Oh. Like imagine that. He'd have to deal with all of this, like the rise and fall of Alexander, the, serving under Philip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're born in a world where Macedon is just an important kingdom in Greece, and then you're fighting to take control of all of the known world in massive battles over decades. It is a lot. I would love to see that life. Not me personally, but (laughs) meaning as in like a story, you know, a book or a movie following... This is why all this period of the successors would make an excellent series. You could have like a whole series with all the characters and that's great, I love it. We should just follow... Any TV producers, listen. Antigonus? Antigonus? Yeah, we should just follow him. And like, just from when he's a small child and just like the whole shebang, the whole thing just... Or Seleucus. Seleucus is cool. Well, that's yeah, that's true, that's true. And he's a good boy. And he's still still alive. So (laughs) I guess, yeah, okay. Well, I I meant just, you know, being able to like serve Philip and just see all of the, you know. Mm -hmm. That is, it's, it's a lot. Very cool. But now the Antigonid kingdom is divided among the victors. Ah. I'm sure this will go great. Yeah, everybody's going to agree and not argue at all. I mean, we've been agreeing all these last three decades. We've been it's agreeing been so hard, you have no idea how hard we've been agreeing. So Seleucus and Lysimachus are the only kings who are there on the field of battle. Mm-hmm. So they decide that, well, Lysimachus was the one that risked most here. He was the one who would have lost everything. He supplied most of the infantry. So Seleucus says, okay, you can keep most of Anatolia. Oh, that's very nice. I mean, yeah. fair, you yeah. know. So it's like, you know, fair enough. In exchange, Seleucus takes other parts of Antigonus's empire. He takes Syria, which was mm-hmm. relatively unimportant, underpopulated area at the time, but it gave him access to the Mediterranean, so that's great. And he also claimed all the area south down to Palestine. So he has a nice big Mediterranean coast. But when Seleucus heads back towards Syria to claim his new lands, he finds that Ptolemy is in the south of Syria. Oh, hey, friend. Hey, friend, remember all those good times? What are you doing in my land? We didn't see you at the battle. That's weird. So why are you here, Ptolemy? What's going on? You're visiting? Yeah. Want a cup of tea? But Ptolemy decides to take Palestine and southern Syria. Ah. So Lucas is a little bit annoyed at this, but he thinks, we've been fighting nonstop for the last 35 years. I am so done. Sure, whatever, just keep it. Me too, Seleucus. Me too. So Lucas actually makes a note that Ptolemy is my friend and I don't want to fight him, so... I'm going to accept the situation. So where does he draw the line? Like, how close does Ptolemy have to get for Seleucus to be like, hey, bro, I, listen, we, I, I can't, yeah. you can't, you can't. Yeah, Ptolemy needs to see how much he feels like poking Seleucus. Yeah. But Seleucus basically says, okay, Ptolemy's my friend. I don't want to fight you. He doesn't renounce his claims to Palestine and the rest of Syria, but right. he still technically claims them, but he's saying... It's not worth fighting for now. Maybe in future, who knows. But for now, let's be chill. I need a nap. Yeah. Also, in the meantime, there have been some political maneuvers because Ptolemy had concluded a marriage alliance with Lysimachus. So Mm -hmm. they basically had two fronts on Seleucus. So 
Yeah. You know, we've seen what happens to the guy who wants to try and take more than he needs to. So, so Lucas says, okay, mm. fine, whatever. This will be fine. But also to gain some extra security, Seleucus contacts Demetrius, yeah. who was son of Antigonus, and now yes. basically controlled the old Antigonid fleet and a few scattered territories around the Mediterranean that were still loyal due to ship power. Mm-hmm. And so Seleucus contacts Demetrius and says, hey, you've fallen on hard times, but I'm willing to make an alliance with you. How does that sound? You have a good fleet. You can help me against Ptolemy, Lysimachus, in case anything were to happen. Yeah. Demetrius isn't in a great position to negotiate, so he says, okay, fine, I'll send you my daughter, Stratonike, hmm. you can marry her. It's unclear at this point if Apama was still alive. We don't know. Yeah. So we're not sure if she had died previously, because, well, you know, it's been 30 years, childbirth is terrible, that mm. sort of thing. Yeah, but also it wouldn't be uncommon to Yeah, it's marry. also not unheard of to marry multiple wives. You know, Alexander had three wives himself. Yeah. Philip had many concubines. You know, it's We've not seen this unreasonable. The weird bit is that Stratonike is younger than Seleucus's son Antiochus by a few uh, years. So, yeah, just. <laughs> but hey, we need our political alliances, and yeah, it's not a real. <laughs> it's not a real marriage. It's just a contract. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, they don't have children, so uh, maybe, hopefully, I don't know. We'll see. But anyway, this alliance mm-hmm. doesn't last. Oh, oh, well, great, great. Uh, mm. Yeah, because Seleucus claimed some cities in Phoenicia that Demetrius had control over. Yeah. And he claimed them as a dowry, basically saying, hey, I married your daughter. Usually the wife brings a present, so those cities are So I'm are taking the present. this present. Thank you. <laughs> so Demetrius starts a new war against all of the allies, but Demetrius uh. is very much weakened. There is no competition. And mm. so the allies take Demetrius's eastern lands, and Seleucus takes a bit more of the little cities on the coast, and he takes Cilicia, which is mm. basically the bit of Anatolia that connects to Syria and is protected from the rest of Anatolia by some mountains. Oh, okay, it's, good. It's an easily defensible place. It's nice to have. But Demetrius isn't out yet, because with a surprising resilience, he flees to Macedon, where he finds that Cassandra has died recently of a horrible, horrible disease. Oh no. Oh no. And his children were useless. Ah. So with a few strategic murders, Demetrius manages to become king of Macedon. Okay. Well, that worked out. Weird. Yeah. Somehow it just happened. Weird how that, that, yeah, that happened. Now, finally... This is the end of the War of the Successors. End of phase two. I mean, oh, uh, end okay. of phase one and a half. But yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Now that the dust is settled, we have one, two, three, four kingdoms. We have Ptolemy in Egypt, Seleucus with the largest fraction of the former empire with a lot of Asia, mm-hmm. Lysimachus with Thrace and most of Anatolia, and Demetrius in Macedon. Yes. So, hooray! We get to have a new empire. Finally, we? we're done with the civil wars, sort of. Are we? Mostly because they're I no longer so skeptical. Finally, after generations, Serial, after like five or six episodes, we get to administer an empire, not just murder people for it. Oh, well, hooray. This is wonderful. I'm still waiting for you to say, aha, gotcha. Uh, in a while. 
<laughs> Wait a minute. So we do have a bit of a breather. I appreciate Yeah, we have this. a nice bit of survival. <clears throat> because now, finally, Seleucus manages to govern his new empire with the help of his son Antiochus, who, you know, being half Iranian, is given more control of the eastern lands where he has family ties, and he can help administer those regions. Hmm. Actually, Antiochus is pronounced co-king to Seleucus. Ooh. I mean, he's definitely junior to Seleucus himself, but he has the authority of a king and is basically given the eastern half of the empire to rule for okay. himself. I cannot see how this might go wrong in any way. We'll see what happens. Uh-huh. Yeah. Also, it strikes me that Antiochus is sort of what Alexander IV should have been, because he's also the half-Iranian, half-Macedonian son of the king who should have had everything. And they're born uh, pretty yeah. much the same year, but... Alex mm. IV dies in a sad way, but Antiochus yeah. is at least a king at some point. Yeah. So Gets there we to go. grow up. Also, the succession is secured by marrying Antiochus to Seleucus's wife, Stratonike. Also Demetrius's daughter. I, you know. I am confused. As well you should be. I wait. Did I hear correctly? Yes. I'm, honestly... Because we are told by Appian that Antiochus, who was a few years older than his new stepmother, fell madly in love with her as soon as they yeah. locked eyes. Yep. But Antiochus was a good boy and he didn't want to cause a scandal, so he, you know, he tried to suppress his feelings, hide he away. Ke- kept it to himself. Yeah. But he began feeling ill because of his love and he uh, went to bed. Heartbreak. Longing for death and trying to starve himself secretly. Oh, damn. How- this... Romantic ass. <laughs> I'll tell you the probable version later. Edge <laughs> lord. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so Seleucus calls doctors. Why is my son fading away? What's going on? How Victorian of him. Yeah, very. And the doctor says, Seleucus, I'm sorry. There's nothing physically wrong with him. It looks like he's lost the will to live. Very Padme of <laughs> him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. So the doctor has a scheme, and he has different people enter Antiochus's room, and he sees that as soon as Stratonike enters, the doctor sees that Antiochus seems reinvigorated, his face lights up, huh? he's like, oh my goodness, there is a reaction. my love is back. Huh? So the doctor tells Seleucus, hey listen. I think I know what's wrong with yeah, your boy. <laughs> your wife is like 36 years younger than you, would you mind? And Seleucus says, oh, well, if it saves my son, of course I'm going to give up my wife. I accept this marriage. What did the wife think? Like, did she like him? Um, it seems that Stratonika wasn't particularly thrilled. Uh-huh. Great, great. So very yeah, one-sided. because Wonderful. she makes some dedications to a sanctuary in Greece where she never calls herself wife of Antiochus, but always daughter mm. of Demetrius. Oh. So, bit of shade being thrown there. But more cynically, the marriage has two purposes. More cynically and realistically. On the one mm. side, now that Demetrius owns Macedon, if Stratonike can get access to Seleucus's Macedonian soldiers, right. she could have influence and sort of help Demetrius come back and take Syria. Mm-hmm. So that's dangerous. If she marries Antiochus, yeah. she's shipped off to the east, where Far away. it's unfamiliar she won't be a threat. And secondly, it sort of helps the succession because Antiochus isn't going to have a baby brother that will threaten his claim to the throne. It's just going to actually secure the succession because 
Well, Antiochus is yeah. going to have his own children, so the line will continue. So, good to see. Right. This is very weird, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. There's a lot of stuff, yes. Of it's, them. it's very messy, but it's going to get messier, you know. We've had brother-sister marriage, tell, tell, tell stepmother me. marriage, yeah, yeah. at least not blood-related, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly better. Yeah, no, I'm more concerned about, like, you know, I mean, this is not new, but about nobody asks the wife. No, Because not really. that doesn't matter. We had one functional relationship with Seleucus and Apama. Let's not get greedy. Uh, oh, yeah, I guess I was getting greedy. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> How silly of me. Yeah. Also, an interesting thing in this marriage is that there's some parallels to Cambyses' marriage. Because oh. anticipating opposition to this weird match, Seleucus used the same argument as Cambyses when asked to marry his sister. Because he said that when the mm. king does it, it has to be right. But compared to okay. Cambyses, Seleucus at least adds that it's right if it serves the common good. So since this is uh, okay, securing I the see. succession and ensuring that my son doesn't die of starvation, it is a positive. We're finding better arguments yeah, it's, you know, it's in this philosophical discussion. And yeah, so now Seleucus heads off to govern the empire itself, where he keeps mm -hmm. up a lot of the old Achaemenid satrap structures. And he ensures that, you know, the military authority and the administrative authority are separate, so rebellions are made more difficult, everything is yep. nice and mosaic and helpful. Yes, you do. And uh, he begins to found a lot of cities to establish a Macedonian presence in the Far East, because he calls for different refugees from Macedon, which is at war again, mm -hmm. but they're far away. So if people want to have, like, a few years of peace, come to the Seleucid Empire... We're making new cities. Imagine coming all the way over and then, like, instability starts here. <laughs> Fortunately not. Surprisingly, this is oh. a relatively peaceful time. So he founds a lot of cities. As I mentioned, Seleucia on the Tigris gets mm -hmm. pumped full of Macedonian population who comes there. Old veterans are allowed to retire with land and riches. Everything is quite nice. That's really nice. Yeah, I'm sorry. I keep being like, <laughs> you have conditioned me to just be on my toes. It's been a bad constantly. time. Constantly. When are things going to go bad? When is it going to go wrong? <laughs> eh, close. Uh. But yeah, so besides Seleucia, also Seleucus begins a massive project of urbanization of Syria, which was, you know, a pretty unimportant area so far, but Seleucus wants it to be his mediterranean-facing area and he wants it to be really mm. important and really well set up yeah so he founds many different fortified cities he ensures that it's very difficult to pass without having to pass these new cities and also he founds two important cities one called seleucia in uh, pieria which is going mm. to be where the tombs of a lot of the seleucids are going to be oh, and uh, just next to it serving as its more inland counterpart is the city of Antioch on the Orontes. Ah, I know this one. Yes, if you've ever heard of the city of Antioch, this city is it. It's being founded now. Yes, the one that the Byzantines are fighting for in Totalis Rankium. Yeah, that one. It's the same one. It lives a long time. Is Antioch from Antiochus? Yes, it's in the name of his son and father, because, well, same name. I see, I see. And, uh, yeah, so... Northern Syria is greatly populated, so it's becoming both richer and more powerful in trade, and also mm. a useful place from which to take Macedonian soldiers and ensure that everything is stable in that area. Mm -hmm. 
in the east instead. Antiochus the co-king is refounding a lot of the Alexandrias that had sort of fallen in disrepair in the recent civil wars because all the soldiers left and made a mess. Yeah. So Antiochus builds these new settlements along the northern border to incentivize trade with the steppe and ensure that, you know, there's not going to be any large-scale invasions. Just ensure that everything is stable and peaceful and everybody can go back to living their lives without having to kill somebody every five seconds. It feels so good to finally, you know, hear a bit of, oh, this is what we're doing for the Empire. We're going to have some Ehrenschein, you know. <laughs> this is what we're doing to, like, finally. improve infrastructure. And, like, ah, oh, finally. Yes, it's been a good time since... I've missed this. I mean, Artaxerxes III was the last one who did something good for us, so... Yeah. <laughs> it's been so long. Remember when we had an empire, Serial? That was fun. I've been starved. <laughs> you promised me the Persian Empire, and it's been the Persian Hunger Games so far. <laughs> <laughs> yes, basically. So in the meantime, also, Antiochus managed to slowly incorporate through diplomacy some of his mom's family in Sogdiana. Mm -hmm. So the empire is expanding there as well. So we have full uh, look over the steppe. Mm -hmm. And everything is quite good because we have no reports of any rebellions in the region and it'll be well governed for far beyond a generation. Mm. So awesome. On the downside, it looks like, unfortunately, the local Iranian population doesn't have a significant position of power. Yeah. And Seleucus and Antiochus are acting as Macedonian kings in the east. They're not doing the Alexander thing of, oh, bow before me as an Achaemenid king or yeah. dress like an Achaemenid king. They are no, fully No, they're, they're fully, kings. yeah, they're just fully colonizing the place. Yeah, pretty much. Also, unlike the Achaemenids who used a neutral administrative language, mm -hmm. they used Aramaic, which the Assyrians had used mm -hmm. before them. The Seleucids use Greek. So oh. if you want to deal with the administration, you need to know Greek. Oh, no. Yeah, that's very... Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, it's less do whatever. It's fine. It's more, yes, we're the new bosses. Do what we say. Mm. I see. And yeah, so it seems like overall the ruling class is mainly Greek in language and customs. But mm -hmm. it doesn't look like it penetrates very deep into the local population. Because generally, you know, as long as you have one important person in the village who can deal with the Greeks, that's fine. They don't really yeah. care what you're doing as a peasant. Yeah. So that's all right. And the main mixing between cultures, which is this whole Hellenistic period we're diving into, which isn't Hellenic, just Greek. It's Hellenistic because it's mixing with all the local cultures. A very similar yeah. thing is happening in Egypt with Ptolemy, who is, you know, he is mm -hmm. a Macedonian king, but he's also the pharaoh. Yeah. There's this whole mixture that is going on and the main connection that we have is in the cities that are being founded where the local aristocracy and the macedonian aristocracy tend to sort of mix together and uh, to interface with the new seleucid elite so we do still have some local population from babylon syria iran who can rise in the administration but it's generally not the very highest levels it's like you can have governors who are local indigenous people but they're not exactly going to reach to be the key advisor of the king or the general of the largest army, that sort of thing. Right. So I was going to ask, since, of course, we're following the royal line of whoever is controlling the Persian part of the empire, right? But, like, mm -hmm. technically there are four kings right now. I guess they all made their own kingdom, so it makes sense. I was just, I guess I was just wondering, are we going to have an episode for each of them? 
No. I assume not. Yeah, I assume as much, but I don't. It's just so strange that like it is everything. Everything is interconnected. Everything comes from the same place. Mm-hmm. But now it's split apart. I anyway. <laughs> yeah, the empire is broken. But if you want to hear more, listen to the Alexander Standard. They're covering everyone. <laughs> oh. So well, maybe there I might. You go. Please do. They're nice. And they do good podcast. It is true. They do. So. <laughs> yep. So we've seen all the administration in the East. We've had about a decade or so of peace. Everything is pretty nice and everybody was looking. You're saying that as if, as if we're done. Like you're saying that as if, oh, it's been a decade. Time for some interesting spicy but. stuff to happen. <laughs> but. Uh, here we go. Problems come from Europe. Because... Oh, of course, as usual. Guess whose fault it is? It's Demetrius! Hooray! Oh my god! <laughs> Why? Because after being a terrible, terrible king in Macedon, he was deposed by his own soldiers. Oh, surprise. And Lysimachus steps in and takes control of the kingdom of Macedon. So he's now the most powerful of the successors. Okay. And so now Seleucus has to deal with the aftermath of this change, because... Well, now Demetrius is running away and trying to find more power. Mm. He wants a new kingdom because he lost the two previous ones. <laughs> Something tells me he's not the best monarch and maybe he shouldn't keep no. getting kingdoms if he keeps losing them. You say that, Seleucus is going to mention it. Yeah. Because Demetrius flees from Macedonia with his loyal men and occupies the Seleucid region of Cilicia, which I mentioned, you know, southeast mm. of Anatolia, protected yes. by the mountains. So Seleucus manages to go in there, takes his army. One last job. Let's go for it. Mm-hmm. For all time's chases... sake. Yeah. And he chases Demetrius away into the north of Syria, which he had spent the last decade fortifying. Mm-hmm. So Demetrius is sort of trapped there. Right into my trap. Yes. And Demetrius sends letters to all the inhabitants of the cities who had been old veterans of Antigonus and say, Hey, I know you've settled down for the last decade and have families and you live in these cities and Seleucus has done everything good for you, but would you join my side? I promise <laughs> oh my you war. God. Please don't tell me this worked. It does not. Oh <laughs> uh, Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, good. <laughs> Nobody wants to join him. They said, listen, we've been fighting for most of our lives. We, we just have a good thing here. Please leave. Why would- why? Why would we? Yeah. So Demetrius tries to mount a night attack on Seleucus. Oh, night attack. But this is Seleucus we're talking about. He was yeah. born in the night. He was born in the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> he is the night. And so Seleucus' forces were ready all night and managed to face Demetrius the next morning. And here, Seleucus did the coolest thing that anybody has ever done. Oh. And I love him, and he is the best. He is okay, so wonderful. I'm listening. We're told that the two armies are facing off. It's Seleucus and his army, Demetrius and his army. Hmm. Seleucus is on his horse, fully armored, ready for battle. Hmm. He then decides to just get off his horse, take off his helmet so everybody can hear him correctly, drop his weapons, have only a wicker shield with himself, and just start marching towards Demetrius's army with all of his men staying behind. I, I, um, I, I like <laughs> very cool looking, very badass of you. Suicidal, but yes, you know. And Seleucus shouts to Demetrius's army, and I quote: 
How long will you be so mad as to follow the fortunes of a bandit who is almost starving <laughs> when your merits could find their reward with a king who reigns in affluence? You could share with him in a kingdom, not depending on hope, but actual possession. He's basically telling them, what are you doing siding with Demetrius? He's lost everything he's ever gained. I'm building an actual kingdom I've been administering peacefully for a decade. Who do you really want to side with? <laughs> Literally, guys, just pulled the, the card of, we were just chilling over here, guys. Wouldn't you rather, like, why are we, why? Why must Come we on. war? <laughs> Seriously, we, do we really want to do this? <laughs> Which point Demetrius's soldiers start chatting to each other. <laughs> Chatting gets louder. Demetrius looks around, takes a horse, and starts running away. As all of his army defects to Seleucus and says, Yeah, fair enough. Please give us a nice place in your new cities. Everybody seems to be having a good time. Yeah. So Demetrius tries to escape, but soon he finds that there's nowhere really to go because he's trapped on all sides by the new cities. So he surrenders personally to Seleucus, where he is taken as prisoner and offered a comfortable imprisonment, but... No longer a king at last. We also get notes that Lysimachus offered Seleucus a large sum of money to kill Demetrius, because he was technically a claimant to the throne of Macedon, that whole thing. But Seleucus made a whole big show of publicly announcing that he wouldn't break his word to Demetrius. He had promised his safety. He wouldn't go back on it. No mm. matter all the money Lysimachus is going to give me, I will treat him with dignity because there we go. Curse my heart and hope to die. Yes. And a few years later, Demetrius will drink himself to death. Because, uh, well, eh, yeah. I mean... How did you think it was going to end? Uh, yeah. It could have ended a lot worse for him. <laughs> Honestly, he yeah. Like, he got it much better than he deserved, I guess. <laughs> yes. So now we have only three successors left. We have Seleucus, his empire, Ptolemy, Egypt, Lysimachus, with most of the West. All of them are now somewhere in their 70s. It's been a while. <laughs> but we have one last drama before we leave the stage. Ah, good. The golden years. <laughs> yes. Please tell me. Who doesn't want to enjoy their 70s with drama? Yeah. So Ptolemy's eldest son, Ptolemy Karaunos, somehow had lost the succession. He wasn't uh. going to succeed Ptolemy. His younger brother was going to. Mm. It happens. So Karaunos went over to Lysimachus's court. Because he was his brother-in-law. You remember the old marriage alliance? They were connected that way. Hmm. But Karavnos wants his own kingdom. He doesn't understand why his brother gets a kingdom and his father gets a kingdom, but he doesn't. He's the eldest. Why not? Hmm. So Karavnos manipulates the old Lysimachus into executing his heir. Oh. By saying, oh, he's going to betray you. Whisper, whisper. What? But it's your heir. Don't. <sighs> but he does. But you should, like, come on. You didn't suspect, I guess. I guess, yeah. He's an old man. He's probably just tired and wants to be done with this. <laughs> That's very fair, honestly. So Cranus's nephew is now the heir to Lysimachus's kingdom. So very nice. And Cranus himself maneuvers himself into a place where he can take control of the kingdom of Macedon when his nephew takes the throne eventually. It's going to be soon. Mm -hmm. It'll happen. In the meantime, Ptolemy, that Ptolemy, dies of natural causes in Egypt. Surprising everyone, <laughs> he managed to die of natural causes. 
Oh, yeah. Probably the only man of this generation to do so, yes. but there we go. <laughs> that is very fair, yeah. But now Egypt is unstable because it has a new king, Ptolemy II. Lysimachus' kingdom is in chaos because the heir is dead, there's a new sort of heir, and they're scheming in the court. Hmm. So Seleucus looks at his helmet in his office, nods one more time, puts on his helmet, gets ready for one last fight. Oh boy. So the 76-year-old Seleucus takes his army, mobilizing the resources of his huge empire in 282, and marches towards Lysimachus to remove that threat and basically reunite most of Alexander's empire at last. Mm. It would just be missing Egypt at this point. It's basically Artaxerxes II's empire. Right. So at this point, Seleucus, in winter of 282, over 281, he nominates Antiochus as his son and heir, gives him control of all of Asia. Seleucus will take Europe. Okay. He's basically using the old Achaemenid tradition of, if we're heading for a big campaign... Name an heir, so yeah, is don't don't clear. do this again, please. <laughs> yeah, if there's anything we've learned from the last fifty years of chaos, <laughs> oh is that you should have an heir. <laughs> Gonna cry. So Seleucus meets Lysimachus in battle at a place called Coropedium. The two sides clash. It is hard fought and long, but Seleucus wins. Lysimachus is killed in battle, and Seleucus now has all the empire. He can march back into Macedon. Many, many decades after he first left it, he can return home, just like the prophecy told him to stay in Asia. The prophecy foretold. So now Seleucus makes retirement plans. He says, okay, Antiochus can rule all of Asia. I'll just rule Macedon just as a personal pet project so I can die where I was born, see the land of my youth once more before the end. That'll be fine. Mm. And there he is joined by Ptolemy Karaunos, who was part of Lysimachus' court, goes to Seleucus and says, please, please take me. I don't want to die. I'll side with you. And so he takes him along for the first crossing into Europe. They finally land on European soil in the city of Lysimachia, which Lysimachus had founded, clearly. Mm. And Seleucus goes with Karaunos to a temple to give thanks for this great victory to the gods. And uh, Seleucus is there giving the sacrifice. And then... He feels a pain in his back. Oh no. He turns around and he sees Karaunos with a bloody dagger in his hands. Seriously? I thought he would just get to die of old age. I mean, everyone liked him. No. At one step away from retaking Macedon and getting home at last, the prophecy had warned him not to return to Europe too soon. Yeah. And the prophecy was right! Yes. So Ptolemy Karaunos runs away, finds some loyal soldiers, makes himself king of Macedon, and poor Seleucus dies there in the temple. So close to reuniting Alexander's empire at last. And the last person who could do this in history. In the end, Karaunos sells Seleucus' body to a Seleucid governor for a great amount of money. His body was then cremated and the ashes sent to Antiochus, who deposited them in a temple built in Syria in the city of Seleucia in Pieria. And so ends the eventful life of Seleucus Nicator, Seleucus the Victorious, mm. so close to finally remaking the empire that Alexander destroyed, but just a step short. Mm. So there we go. What do you think, Serial? What are your thoughts on Seleucus? Uh, good. 
Uh, thank goodness. Yeah, just... <laughs> he managed to actually do something, something good for yeah, a change. So, so, like, we had a little bit of peace. We could work on the Empire for once. He did a good yeah. job. I am so... Like, this is so refreshing after the last episode. <laughs> Hooray! I'm so it's glad. been so dark for so long. I understand what you like him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like also, this too. is the end of phase two of Alexander's funeral games because, well, all his successors are dead. Anybody who knew Alexander is dead now. Wow. Now, everybody's been born in a world where the Achaemenid Empire didn't exist. Nobody remembers the Achaemenids anymore. Oh, oh no. So, this is the new normal. We'll see what happens then. And just for anybody listening who's wondering, phase three ends when Rome comes and destroys everything. <laughs> Ah, so as we'll Rome get does. to that in a few episodes, several episodes. Okay, I am ready to rate this man. Okay, let's get ready to rate Seleucus the First, Seleucus Nicator. So our first category is final moments. How interesting was his death? Being stabbed in the back by the son of his friend just as soon as he was about to achieve his greatest ambition and retire. He was one day from retirement. Awful. Awful. <laughs> uh, it's Come terrible. On. It's interesting, but it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I feel so bad for him. He was so close. Uh, yeah. I'm going pretty high, honestly. I'm, uh, I'm impressed by it, even though I would rather he... Because of the pain? ...ended better. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm a... I'm a seven-ish. I'm willing to go up or down. What are your thoughts? Because it's a murder, it's in a dramatic moment. I actually might go for eight, honestly. Oh, I wouldn't go. I mean, like, the death itself is not that imaginative, I guess. That's fair. I could see that, yeah. I think I'll go for a five. A five? And most of those points are, like, the situation. Like, when it happened and, like, how ridiculous it is that it happened. And, like, why would sure. you do this? Because <laughs> otherwise it's just, uh, eh, he got stabbed. We've okay, seen that before. Yeah. You've convinced me down to a seven, honestly. Ah. But I think the drama of the moment and the situation is enough. That it, that's very it fair. That's it. very fair. So a five and a seven gives us a six out of ten for final moments. Next category is battle hardness. How good was he at wars and fighting and all that? So let's summarize his CV. Mm -hmm. Let's see what he did. Yeah. So he started out as a commander of Alexander's elite phalanx, the Silver Shields. He was later promoted to commander of the cavalry and fought under Ptolemy, both on land and by sea, commanding his fleet and as a sub-commander in his army. He then managed to conquer Babylon with a thousand men. He then managed to launch a night attack on his enemies and basically yoink their whole army. Yep, that was great. Loved that. That was cool. He managed to stop the Antigonids from taking Babylon. He managed to conquer all of the eastern provinces, make a deal with Chandragupta. Yes, love that. Then march back, bring the crucial forces that were needed to defeat Antigonus at Ipsus, and win that first phase of the civil wars. He defeated Demetrius in another war. Then when Demetrius came back again after losing Macedon, he basically just defeated him by convincing the soldiers to leave that he sucked yeah <laughs> yeah basically and then he won the final battle of corpadium against lysimachus and took what remained of the empire by the spear yeah he doesn't really lose anywhere significant Ever. yeah 
he's won everything he's managed to do against some pretty significant odds, especially at the beginning when it was just like him and a few buddies. So I'm very impressed, honestly. I don't... I'm in very high territory. Definitely above an 8. Yeah. And I'm trying to ask myself why not a 10, honestly. Because Alexander is the only one that's had a 10 so far. Yeah. But Seleucus... I mean, he I was good at one thing. Yeah. <laughs> was fighting. If there was one thing Alexander could do, it was stab people. So I don't know... It, you know, I'm trying to think why not a 10 for Seleucus. Because... You know, yes, Alexander was fighting the whole Achaemenid Empire altogether, yeah. but Alexander also had a full-ass kingdom. Yeah. With an army trained by decades by his father that was the greatest fighting yeah, force yeah, of its yeah. age. And Seleucus had, like, a few buddies and had to just try and gather everything he needed to actually work. Like, he ran away on his own with his family from Babylon and built up from there. I Absolutely, yeah. Honestly, like, you're convincing me. I... I do think he should get a 10. That was very, very impressive. Yeah, like, I was thinking back to previous rulers, why we didn't give it before. The closest mm. one that we had was Darius the Great. Yes. But he didn't succeed in the Greek expedition fully. He didn't succeed fully in the Scythian expedition. I mm. think there were some wrinkles, but Seleucus, I can't yeah. see any. He was forced to make a deal with Chandragupta, but I don't think but, that's a flaw. That, I think that's no, a, that's that, that was strategically, like, a great... Sound decision. Yeah, he got the elephants he needed for Ipsus. He yeah. got everything. Honestly, let's, let's go for a 10. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yes. Hell yeah. Ah. You go, Seleucus. With a 10 and a 10, you get a 20 out of 20 for battle hardness, equaling Alexander the Great. Amazing. Take that, you spoiled child. Mm-hmm. Next category is scheminess. How good was he at plots and manipulations and all that? He, I don't think it's it was, his main feature, but he no, did No, but something. it was decent. It was yeah, decent. Yeah, he was capable. Actually, let's start from the beginning. He managed mm-hmm. to first murder Perdiccas at the very start of all this. Yes. And got Babylon in exchange, so that's pretty schemey. He then, I don't know if you want to put it, he managed to recognize that Antigonus was bad news and flee Babylon before he was executed. Uh, so I, I don't think I don't that's very schemey. That, that's, but, just, yeah. that's just smart. Fair. Then he managed to take a few forces, sneak into Babylon, take it by acclamation. That's sort of schemey. Mm-hmm. But then we have the night attack where he eliminated yes. the officers and took, night and took the army. That was, that was amazing and I love it. Yes. Then we have the night attack against Antigonus, which managed to defeat him that other time. Weren't these more fighting than scheminess? But if it's a night attack, I mean, I feel like... I you know, feel, but I feel like this is not going like on behind doors and. and I feel like, like it deserves you know. something. Okay, like okay. you know, it's not like fully in your face. Let's call a battle. Let's do it one to one. I feel like it's pretty. It's more underhanded. Let's Surprise say. attack. Okay. Yeah. Then what else did he do? He had. Uh, I don't know how many points you want to put into the weird Stratonike marriage. Mm. <laughs> Moving around. I- how schemey that is, how just weird, how more I, shocking, maybe. I don't think that's schemey. Yeah. That might be shocking. Yeah, so then you did that, but. and... Well, I, don't, I can't think of anything much else for her scheminess. It's not his strongest no. category, I'll say. It was decent. I'd go for, like, a six. A six? Or really? A wow, I, I thought I you mean, were going to go uh, a lot like lower. like, average scheminess. Maybe a five. I was going to go for four. I, th- I thought I was going to go for four and you'd go for like a one or something. But no, 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 no. I mean, he's, he, did, he did do some stuff. 
I'm feeling it today. I don't know. Okay, go for it. Yeah, then I'm going to uh, stick with my... F- no, actually, I, a four might, might sound... Yes, you, you've convinced me. A four might make yeah, more sense. Yeah, because he does stuff, but, you know, it's not... There's no... I mean, there are some things, but it's not his main deal. So yeah. let's do a four and a four for scheminess gives him an eight out of 20, which is, oh, as much as Artaxerxes third. Interesting. Fair Ooh. enough. I'll take it. Well, you have these comparisons. I do not. Yes. So. so next category is shock factor. How shocking was this man? He has uh, something going for him, so... Yeah, like we mentioned, some, a couple things, but... Yeah, also so not- again, the murder of Perdiccas, the not fully straightforward battle tactics. I don't know if you want to put that he remains married with Apama, despite everyone else giving up their Iranian wives. That's, uh, that's just sweet. That's not yeah, shocking. That's sweet. Sweet factor. Right? Yeah. Oh, new category. So he has that, then shocking. The whole weird marriage with Stratonika, I feel, deserves yeah. some points. Because he marries this woman that is like almost 40 years younger than him. Yeah. Then has her married to his son. It's, it's all very icky. Mm-hmm. So, not ideal. And uh, shock factor. Again, not terribly shocking, I'd say. I don't know if you want to give him points for the absolute badassery of just walking up to Demetrius's army and saying, do you want to side with this loser or me? I, maybe, yes. <laughs> I honestly... I feel like that deserves one yes, point. Yes, that definitely. is, please. That was excellent. I love that. That's very good. Then in his later life, I mean, he declares war on, on Lysimachus at the very end. Don't know if you want to give that anything, but... Mm. Besides that, pretty straightforward. I feel like here the main deal is Stratonica and murdering Perdiccas. Yeah. So I think I'm also going with a four as for scheminess. So are you also um, continuing or do you have a different level in mind? I think a four makes sense. Okay. So off we pop again with a four and a four of shock factor. That is an eight out of 20. Next category is Aaron Shine, where we see how good he was for the Empire and Iran in particular. Finally. We, we finally, for the first time in four episodes, we get to give a grade above zero. A lot of achievements. So on the pro side, he managed to stabilize the empire. He managed to actually rule in peace for a while. He's founding a lot of new cities. He's letting the soldiers rest. He's building up a new population. He is improving trade across the empire, improving roads, ensuring that everything works. He also has deals externally with Chandragupta. He has made peace with the new empire of India, basically. He also decides not to go to war with uh, Ptolemy for no reason. He manages that. He manages to ensure that the empire is nice and stable, but also manages to expand it out into Anatolia and Mm. partially Macedon for, like, the ten minutes he wasn't murdered. Yeah. He manages to have peace at last. He also manages to re-administer the empire. He uses the old Achaemenid structure to ensure everything is properly governed. He has an heir before the end that he is well set up and everything. So it's quite good great. to Listen, see. He did great. I'm yeah. very proud. Also, as another upside, he helped restore Babylon. He finally rebuilt the temple that Xerxes had destroyed, or at least right. gave funds for it. So that's nice. But on the downside, we have a few elements. So first of all is that he's more of a colonizing force than... yeah. An Iranian Empire. So 
that's not great. Like, you know, yes, technically you can go into the government, but mm. it's still yeah. iffy. It's sort of like how in British India you could go into the colonial government if you took an exam in English in London. Yeah, sure, good luck, so who but, could do that? You know, technically you can, but practically, eh. So that's not great for our side. On the other hand, he's not really oppressing them, but is sort of soft forcing them into Hellenizing somehow. Not great, that's kind of a problem. Yeah. We're just, we've been so starved of any kind of stability <laughs> that I'm like, oh, finally. Yeah. But yeah, if we focus on like how it was for the Iranian population and the Iranian culture and such. Mm. Yeah, he's sidelining them more than they were. I mean, you know, they're doing better than they were under constant civil war, but... Because, so you know, <laughs> the bar was really low. Yeah. The bar was underground. And also another bad thing, which we're going to have to face next episode, is that he dies before having consolidated Lysimachus's kingdom. Mm. That's not his fault. I don't, you know, I don't know how much stock you want to put into that. But the fact that he dies at this point means that all of Lysimachus's kingdom basically explodes. So uh. having to consolidate those bits is going to be a lot of trouble for Antiochus. Well, I mean, I would argue that it was not his plan to die. And it was Definitely also not, not like he, he did not expect to. So it's not like he could prepare. I was about to say that Alexander also didn't plan on dying young, but, you know, Seleucus planned for an heir. He ensured that before the expedition, he gave all powers in Asia to his heir. He just made sure that the transition was as smooth as possible. I think, I don't think he could have prepared any better for that, so... I'm willing to give it, like, half a point if I'm undecided, but nothing major. So overall, I'm quite impressed. Mm -hmm. Definitely not a 10, because you know, he's not Cyrus not or like Darius you. the yeah. Great, so could have been better. I think I'm hovering on an 8-ish, because yes, it's good. I think he, if he had been an Achaemenid king, definitely 9 or 10. Yeah. Since he is not an Achaemenid king and he is, you know, this new... Foreign influence, I'd say eight. I think eight is uh, what I mean for, which is what Xerxes the first, what I gave Xerxes the first anyway. Mm. So I think honestly, fair. What are you thinking? I think an eight sounds correct. Okay, so eight and eight, we're agreeing a lot today, which is Yeah, to it, listen, it, the facts are the facts and... Uh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So with an eight and an eight, Seleucus gets a 16 out of 20 for Aaron Shine, which is... Well, the best score since Artaxerxes III, but that wasn't difficult. I keep thinking you're saying St. Lucas. <laughs> no, there are different people. Go to Pontifex for St. Lucas. <laughs> He's in fourth place for overall Aaron Shine score, which is impressive, especially for a foreign mm. ruler. Listen, the bar was underground. So, yes, <laughs> you know. Okay, so next category is face of faces. What does this man look like? What do you think, Serial? I'm working on it. Yes. It's gonna be fun. I'm excited. The bus I'm going to show you later on comes from the Archaeological Museum in Naples, where they have a whole room full of the successors, and I would love to go there because it sounds super cool. Oh. You see everybody's like, oh, this guy, oh, it's Seleucus, oh, it's Antigonus, oh, it's Cassander, <laughs> oh, it's all the people. Oh, you nerd. Yes. It's also why... Now you may know why you nerd out about all these different random names that are thrown into the story of Alexander. It's like, I've never heard of this person, but then it's like, oh my goodness, it's the guy, it's, it's him. It's him. Yeah, also, I think this is what they were trying to do with the, um, the Alexander movie, the Oliver uh, Stone yeah. one. 
introduce all the characters. Yeah, basically, they have one scene where they're just shouting out names of different generals. And if you don't know who these people are, it's just a really, really like, ah, random scene. Okay. Uh-huh. Otherwise, it's like, oh my goodness, they're here in one room. They're all together. Ooh, look at them. They're about to kill <laughs> each other in a few decades. Oh my goodness, it's so exciting. So let's wait for Serial's work of art, and then we shall see what it is. Okay, so Serial yes. has finished their Done. drawing, and I will now look it up and see what happened. What is this? Who knows? Oh, I see the scene you decided to depict. Let me open it better. Okay. <laughs> I thought it would look cool. Okay, just... It does look very cool. So remember, listeners, that time I told you at the beginning of the episode that Seleucus wrestled a bull. And a completely irrelevant <laughs> mention, you know. Yes. Well, it's that scene. Because you have Seleucus there struggling, holding this bull partly by the back, partly by the horns. The bull has two... Puffs of uh, vapor coming out of its nostrils. It's rearing around. It has a large spindly tail that it's probably whipping back and forth, as you would if you're a bull trying to escape a man who's holding you. And Seleucus is there, wavy hair, wavy hair, nice robe, a lot of action lines behind him because he's stopping a bull in full charge because he is a madman. So... There we go. That is an excellent okay, okay, solution. Okay. But remember how I asked about the anchor and to show me like what an anchor here yes. looked like? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Okay, 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 okay. I see now. Yes, that is beautiful. Yes, if you look at it, listeners, you can see that actually all the horns basically make up the lucid anchor. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Which works very well for the whole drawing. So he is wrestling the Seleucid Empire into place at last. So it works on more levels than one. There Ta-da. we go. Very cool. Thank you very much, Serial. Oh, sometimes I have an inspired day <laughs> and it actually works out. And now let me see you. Let me see you. Let me show you his bust in Naples. It is a bronze copy of a Greek original, as most bronze copies are. Okay, here you go, Serial. Please describe what our boy Seleucus looks like. Oh, very stout lad. Like a wide face, very square-like. As all Macedonians are, yeah. apparently have. Yeah. Slightly hair, shorter than I've given him. He was a younger man. Yeah, I guess. And strong features, sunken eyes, protruding chin. It is... I like this face. It's very... It's a good, it's, strong look. I like yes. It, yeah. It's like, it has a lot of personality. I am a fan. Actually, I, I quite like that. Very nice. Okay, so now we need to put a point value to it. How nice do you think this portrait is? Is it a contemporary portrait? It's a copy of a contemporary one, so... Well, yeah, I did It fits. But was it, like, was it made during, you know... Yes, it should have been made during his actual reign. So I'm quite high up. I think it's very good. Like, the sculpture itself is very good. I like his features. They're memorable. Yeah. So... I really like it. I'd go for, like, at least an eight. Yeah. It also feels less... I, I, I was between it, it 9 and feel, 10, honestly. Yeah, it, it said at least. But it, it also <laughs> doesn't feel as stylized as, for example, what happens to Alexander. Yeah, that's true. Like, it actually feels like the face of a, of a dude. Yeah. Surely true. following, like, whatever Sanders at the time and, like, way of portraying people, but still, like, a face that a real person... Like, the, it was based on a real person. Yeah, definitely, so... That's so, quite nice. I'm yeah. um I'm gonna go for a ten. I love this face. Good character design. 
<laughs> you know what? I'll go for a two. I, I yeah, agree with you here. Let's go. So, with a ten and a ten, he gets a five out of five for face of faces. Amazing. Have we given has We've given Alexander the ah, highest score yes, as well. Yes. Because it's just an iconic Alexander. You know what Alexander looks like. Yeah, yeah, no. Alex had to get a good yeah. you know, the pretty boy. Yeah, the closest Achaemenids were Darius and Xerxes, because yeah. come on. Okay, next category is lengthiness. How long did this man reign? So just to give you a frame of reference, what I am counting is from when Alex IV is murdered Uh to when, well, Seleucus is murdered. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you did talk about like a decade of peace. So at least Mm -hmm. more than 10 years. Yes. I will say... Oh, they also fought for like 35 years or something. Yes, that's well, including all much... the bits where there was technically still a king. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll say 40? It feels like a lot. Okay. 40 years is pretty much the time he was active, but yeah. actually he reigned from 309 to 281. So that is what? 28 years. Okay. As king. Basically uh, as king, essentially. Okay, okay. Before, Fair. Yeah, before, but you know, for but the I ten years that, before that, he I wasn't that he was wrong. still around. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Reasonable. <laughs> so yes, finally, after Alexander's Fair. death, we have a dynasty, the Seleucid dynasty. But these twenty-eight years give him a two point eight points out of five for lengthiness. Ooh, damn. Which <laughs> leads us to the final score, which is to say, a sixty-five point eight out of one hundred. For our boy Seleucus Nicator, mm. which makes him the third highest ranked ruler that we've had so far, dethroning Artaxerxes III from his oh, podium. Oh. It feels, so, yeah, honestly, I think he deserves it. I think he did an excellent job taking a yes. situation that was absolute chaos yes. <laughs> and making a, a functioning empire out of it Exactly. Again. Like, that's, that's very good. And he's also schemy. He has a bit of scandal in there, peppered, which helps, unlike Cyrus, who is too good for yeah. this sinful earth. So, yeah. So, I think congratulations, Seleucus, on inaugurating the 60s club. Indeed. So, there we go. But we have a final question on, is he really that great? Is he powerful enough? Is victorious. he impressive enough? Successful, victorious enough? To be called a Shahanshah, or is he just a Shahanshah? I think, honestly, yeah, I am all for it. I think he's relevant enough, and I enjoyed this. Um, I mean, he he does such a difficult thing with like the cards that he was dealt. So he yeah, started from yeah. nothing to I create know. the largest successor kingdom of all of them. He has the largest fraction of the empire. He actually left. brought. Uh, period of peace and of course like he wasn't perfect but like what he did was very impressive i yes i would yeah, say I he, he is definitely it. memorable and he founds a dynasty that's you know that's always a great thing to have and so what was that I, about the, the seleucid calendar or time like yes keeping? the seleucid calendar starts yes. in 311 and it will last beyond his empire so it's pretty impressive so I think it is definitely consequential enough to be called yeah. Shahanshah. So congratulations, Seleucus. Woo! 
You can finally go into the paradise gardens and rest at last Hooray! after all your. We need like party poppers here. or something. Yeah, we should ask air horns. Yes, and yeah, so you can finally go to the paradise garden to meet your predecessor Alexander and, and slap him in the face. And yeah. Tell him next time, have and an ask air. him what the hell he was thinking. I've been fighting all my life because of you. How dare you? Ugh. So there we go. That is the end of today's episode. And, well, I hope you'll join us next time for the episode on Antiochus I. See how Ooh. this son manages to handle this empire. Will he just throw it all in the trash? Will he be able to govern it effectively? Oh, boy. We'll see what happens. Who knows? Uh, I am nervous about this. Yes. However, to find out, you will have to wait a little bit longer than usual because the holiday season is coming up and we have a lot to do and we would like a bit of a vacation. So we will be taking a three-week hiatus and we will see all of you in the new year, 2023. Yes. Hope you all have a good holiday season, whichever holiday it is that you celebrate. And even if you don't celebrate any holiday, enjoy the fact that there's a solstice, and finally the sun is coming back. Thank goodness Praise it's been so sun. dark. Yes. <laughs> and if you're in the southern hemisphere, enjoy the sun. It's probably nice there. Yeah. If during this holiday period you have nothing better to do, why not leave us a review and tell everyone else who is on their holidays looking for a podcast to listen that, hey, we exist, and we're actually nice. But, so well, we tried to be, you know. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for the nice comments, and take care. And we'll yeah, see care. you very soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs> 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 okay, bye. <laughs>